Keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side of life. If you'll help us every day, it will brighten all the way. If we keep on the sunny side of life. Welcome to the first 2020 edition of the Export Finance Podcast. And what a start to the year it's been. Uh, I'm sure everyone listening uh, had exactly this written into their business plans for the year ahead. Uh, and so I'm sure it's it's plain sailing for you guys as it is for us. Uh, not really. Um, I'm delighted to be joined today by uh, Gabby Buck of GKB Ventures. And uh, he and I are going to chew the fat for a little while on what this uh, COVID-19 pandemic is likely to mean in the short term, medium term and long term for precision provision of export finance and what it's going to mean for the role of some of the key players involved, be they banks, corporates or ECAs, the challenges they'll face and potentially the opportunities they have. So, I mean, Gabby, I thought maybe a good place to start uh, would actually be by looking back to the financial crisis of 2008, because I guess that's the last time that uh, ECAs really had to step up and, and there was a sort of huge counter-cyclical shift in the economy that led to the export finance industry having to step up and, and, and get things motoring again. Um, but obviously, this is very different to the financial crisis. I just wanted to see if you can talk a little bit about what are the similarities you see and and really how it how it's how it differs as well okay uh similarities 2008 2009 was about liquidity in the banking sector and we're seeing the same today so banks are struggling to manage excess demand for funding existing bank clients are taking cash where they can and drawing down on their lines funding costs are going up as a, as a result of that and banks are not keen to take on new clients. So exactly the same in 2009 as it is today. However, today we have three fundamental differences. One, this is not just about banks and finance. This is about the whole economy. Today, it's fundamentally about credit risk. This is hitting every sector imaginable. Whole swathes of the economy are under strain with a real threat of going under. And the third, and, and in many ways, the one I feel most frightening, this is about speed and speed of change. Things are so are happening so quickly today, it's really hard to keep up. The global financial crisis that started at tail end 2008 and took a while for it to really dig in. Today, COVID-19 and the impact of that is hitting us overnight. You just have to look at the equity markets. Equity investors are having to face an overnight collapse in revenues, profits, and dividends. And I was looking back at the FTSE 100 share index, and that in one week, one working week in March, fell by 23%. And I was also reading that in the emerging markets, $42 billion of um of outflow has been seen since this crisis from the emerging markets. So every day matters. You know, you blink an eye and another company goes into liquidation. And that speed of change, the impact of change 
is, I think, the most frightening aspect of today in comparison to 2008, 2009. So it's credit. It's about credit risk across all different sectors. And it's the speed that's hitting everybody. Okay. Um, I mean, yes. And, and well, let's let's focus on that, that speed issue, um, certainly in terms of how export finance will will play a role as well. Um, speed is is possibly not a word that is often associated with with the ECA space. Um, with that in mind, do you think the industry is going to be up to playing a role here? Uh, the industry of the ECAs or the banks or both? Well, I mean, I mean to to an extent, I mean, I think it's 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 possibly both. I I, I get that sort of a lot of the the uh, challenges related to executing quickly are often placed at the the door of an ECA but but I think it's a it's an industry that involves a lot of documentation on both sides so I kind of think it's it, it's something that can be placed at, at both doors okay I think um, the banks have got a challenge and, and they're facing many challenges um, and um, you know, and I look back as to when I was working for a large investment bank and running an ECA department um, through that global financial crisis. And, um, and I recall uh, that there are a number of challenges that you need to undertake and, 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 and learn from fairly quickly in, in what was a, 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 a time period. But those that moved first had first mover advantage. And I think there was about five or six things which um, are going to be replicable or um, uh, pertinent to today's market. And the first is is that the banks and the ECAs need to act very quickly on asset-backed financing. You know, these are the sectors, whether it's aviation, whether it's shipping, whether it's rail, these are the first that tend to go into default. And whoever moves quickly on those type of assets will have a, 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 a better outcome. The second is that the banks need to ensure that the quality of the ECA guarantee is maintained. And they've got to work with the export credit agencies and treat those ECAs as, as investors. Uh, and, and those banks have to work alongside the ECAs and, and, and to some extent handhold with them the, the workout um, on the various transactions. The third, and this is going to be applicable to both bank and ECAs, is that you've got to allocate much more management time on any rescheduling and have the best people working on them, even if that means reallocating your front office originators to this middle office functionality. Uh, The fourth, and there's going to be huge scrutiny on the banks, is that they have to do everything internally to keep the perception that the ECAs and the ECA assets is of top credit quality. The banks need to make sure as they work through this, everybody outside of the ECA team will be looking at the ECA team and be looking to see how those assets perform under stress. And it needs to be smooth because if it isn't, then those teams are not going to survive um, after this crisis is over. Okay, I mean, yeah, sorry. I mean, I was going to say that's an interesting point in terms of perception internally. Um, 
and presumably there's going to be quite a lot of difference as to what the quality of that asset looks from ECA to ECA as, as different governments are hit by, by different challenges. And we've seen that a little bit already. Um, I mean, is it, are banks going to have to be, I mean, internally creative with how they how they communicate this? Or, I mean, is, is there a real chance that these assets aren't as high quality as they once were? What's your thoughts there? Well, I think that... Um you'll know and I know that every ECA banker has been saying since since God was a boy that ECA assets are top quality. They they provide you with political and commercial guarantees and in an event of a default, you, you're going to get bailed out. Um, the rest of the bank outside of the ECA team are going to be looking at the ECA team and saying you've got a very large portfolio. You've been booking X billion of dollars of these assets all across the globe. Um, if those assets do not perform... And there are losses in those assets where hitherto there had been risks to a sovereign, but in reality they end up as being an emerging market risk. Then that team is going to have its wings clipped at the very least going forward, or may just get may get closed down. If what it's been saying um, for the last five ten years doesn't become true, then it's curtains for that bank. In terms of ECA. And so what I'm saying is that they have to ensure that as they go through the crisis, they internally market the benefits of ECA financing so that when they do come out of this, they are a stronger team in terms of being able to do new business. There's no point in surviving this and then finding that you have no business going forward. Is the, is the key point I'm saying. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Sorry, go on. And I was going to say, as part of that, they, I think, should wherever possible, distribute those ECA assets. This is a time internally to show that ECA assets are high-quality assets and can be sold even in distressed situations. If you don't have a culture of selling ECA assets, start one now. And This is a great time for the banks to be able to demonstrate that these are high-quality assets even through difficult times. And if you do decide to hold beware of the funding costs and the impact of having to extend the tenors on the existing transaction. So challenging times, everybody's going to be looking at the EC, you know, the portfolio teams are going to be looking at the ECA assets and just saying, these, these better perform. If they go wrong, we want to make sure that these assets are funded out by the ECAs. Okay, and, and take, well, taking a couple of those points, I mean, certainly in, in, in terms of sort of selling down assets, I guess you've got sort of two distinct buckets there. One bucket, which is um, existing portfolio, which may in some cases be sold down, but in other cases won't have been. Um, and then in the second bucket, you've got sort of uh, newly originated uh, loans from this day forward. Um, I'd assume that there's likely to be um, a a higher attractiveness of assets originated going forward, you know, uh, certainly because of the, the the risk outlook which the um, loan will have been um, sort of negotiated, the, the background that will be negotiated against, but also um, because, let's be honest, the price is likely to be higher that um, the banks will have been charging and that will be reflected, therefore, in what 
what they'll be able to sort of achieve as a price from any sort of investor or anyone looking to buy it in the secondary market. I'm guessing for bucket one, where pricing has been a little bit soft, it seems the consensus has been amongst some of the bankers that I've spoken to at least, that 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 could be more of a challenge and they could actually find that if they really do need to sell those assets, um, there's a chance they they may have to do that at a loss. Um, Any views on that? Yeah, I think um, any bank that sells any assets at this moment in time will suffer a mark-to-market loss as a result of the the changes in the market pricing. And I don't think, um, you know, senior management will, will outside of the ECA will look at that as being you know, a real problem in today's market. They much rather have a mark-to-market loss in terms of, of an asset being uh, mispriced to finding an asset which was thought to be guaranteed by an ECA uh, and that asset then becomes, or the guarantee becomes null and void, or the guarantee is not paid out on time. Having an asset a print- is no longer an asset. Yeah. yeah. Having a principal loss on the underlying loan is a much greater sin than, than having a mark-to-market loss. All banks are going to have mark-to-market losses associated with their block. I mean, yesterday, um, HSBC, you know, the biggest European bank by assets, you know, came out with figures for the first quarter, 48% down from the, the same position year on year last year. Um, you know, mark to market loss as a result of COVID-19, I think banks will find that acceptable. Having a loss on principle because the ECA guarantee is null and void, uh, that's going to close your team down. Mm-hmm. And on that first uh, that first bucket, the bucket of um, of deals that originated um, from now on in, do you think that they do you, do you suspect that they will be more attractive assets to a secondary market? Yeah, I think that any asset that has been fully drawn down and you're in that repayment phase, there's no slippage. You know exactly what the payments are due in every six months from here on in. Those are the assets which are much easier to repackage. There's no agency risk. There's no slippage. There's no there's no delay. You're in a straight repayment profile. Those are going to be much more attractive assets to to find secondary market investors. Those transactions which are still you know, halfway through a drawdown, those are going to be really challenging for the banks. Um, every drawing going forward will need to be um, endorsed and supported by the ECA. Um, you know, if, you, if you're dealing, if you look at the bigger set, the biggest sectors in this business has historically been oil and gas, um, has been cruise ships, has been, you know, aviation. Um, both of these markets are going to be challenged um, on, on transactions, both in the mark-to-market price and in the oil and gas. Any project that's still in the development phase now, some of the ECAs will need to be held firm uh, and comfortable that the continuation of funding that project to the end is the right thing to do. And contractors themselves will have problems in the supply chain of being able to deliver and build the rest of that project. If half the supply chain is no longer operating, there's going to be real challenges in terms of getting these projects over the line. So projects that have been done, fully drawn down, that's easy. That's an easy asset to sell. The stuff that are in the development phase or building out, that can be more challenging. 
Okay. And I mean, we've spoken sort of so far mainly about sort of the, the role of the banks currently, um, but we've you've, you've certainly hinted at, at the role that the ECAs will, will need to, to play, either in ensuring that sort of those assets are as 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 credible as as they were once deemed, but also I suppose in terms of the way they they manage their own sort of portfolio um, risks of default uh, payment terms. I mean, maybe talk about how an ECA should be responding in the in the here and now. Let's not think too far about sort of rebuilding the world afterwards, but in the here and now, what should an ECA be doing? So I think that the ECAs, um, we have to look back to history. I mean, that they were set up in 1919, um, Treaty of Versailles, after the First World War, coincidentally after the flu, uh, the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918-1919. Um, they were there to fill a market gap. They were there to create uh, uh, and facilitate global trade. Um, they're going to be doing exactly the same today. And so I, I have no qualms or concerns that the ECAs will um, not be able to provide the support that they need to. You know, they, they will see this as being this is their time. At the moment, the ECAs have been very quick to um, look at uh, providing liquidity for the supplier side. So there's a, every ECA has come up with a whole host of different you know, liquidity, working capital, bonding support, um, uh, liquidity funding to the suppliers to make sure that they can carry on doing what they do. Um, however, I do believe that this is a global problem and we need a global coordinated solution. Um, and, and I think that the ECAs need to be doing this to facilitate the support at the buyer side. Um, and that, that I, I hope will be done on a coordinated basis. I would suggest that that should be done through the OECD so that you don't have a race to the bottom and you don't have uh, you know, different ECAs offering different um, schemes, but that a buyer feels confident that they could go to a number of ECAs and have much more flexibility and support today than they would have done um, prior to COVID-19. I'm just going to pick, pick you up on that for, for a moment. It's, I guess it's quite interesting, certainly if you compare it to the, the financial crisis, you've almost got a situation flipped on its head where the, the banks really weren't particularly coordinated, not so much in the financial crisis itself, but in the sort of the, the regulatory wave that happened afterwards. And, and I think it, you know consensus was they weren't particularly coordinated to the response and the reaction to Bile 2, Bile 3, etc., and that's obviously changed within export finance quite considerably within the last few years with the onset of the ICC export finance group. And there are now regular meetings of, of export finance bankers. You compare that to the situation with ECAs and you think of what that situation was like pre sort of 2008. Uh, it's fair to say there was a, a the, the, the ECA product offering was, was much more um, homogenous. Uh, the OECD consensus, though, you know, I'm not going to sort of go back and look at it with rose-tinted spectacles, but certainly seem to be sort of more more sort of respected uh, both in Europe uh, uh, and and in Asia. Uh, you also had a situation where you know, sort of, US Exim Bank was a, a sort of a strong player. Sort of since that, sort of 2008, you've had this situation where huge amounts of innovation have happened across different ECAs, new product lines. I think the ECAs themselves have become more 
sort of communicative in terms of how they compete with each other than they ever used to. Um, and the, the level playing fields, whilst, you know, I'm not naive to think it was ever completely uh, level, is it is now more competitive, more uh, more uneven than ever. So, yeah, I mean, you look at the OECD in particular, you know, you have some, some ECAs that are members of that and some that aren't. Uh, same for other uh, institutions as well. If you look at the Burn Union, you've got credit insurers that are members, but exim banks such as JBIC uh, are not members. So with that in mind, with that background, do you think the ECAs will be as well placed to provide a coordinated response as they would have once been? Or is it almost the, the genie came out of the, the lamp last time and, and that's going to be difficult now? What they'll actually do and what I hope they will do will be different. So um, okay. I hope that they will be coordinated. I think that coordination is important because you need to get the buyers to buy and that needs confidence that a buyer, and let's, let's look at a developing market buyer, they need to feel comfortable that if they start to develop the idea of going through a project that there are a whole series of different export credit agencies are willing to provide support in a post-COVID-19 um, position or, or during this COVID-19 position that is more flexible than the standard OECD rules. Um, and if you've only got one ECA that's being flexible and the others are not and it's not coordinated, um, that's going to that's going to warp the market and, and in fact, may um, not give the comfort that the buyer is looking for. The comfort that the buyer would be looking for is knowing that standard terms are available from a whole host of different ECAs in a more flexible way than they have been in the past. And that needs to, to be coordinated. Um, and I think there's a number of things that the ECAs need to do to, to build the confidence um, of the buyer end. Um, and I think that that's going to include 100% cover. So the ECAs will increase the export credit loans from 85% of the contract value to 100% of the contract value. Um, I think there's going to be a greater need for direct lending. And the reason for that is one of the, the only positive that's coming out of COVID-19 at the moment is the super low OECD SIR rates, which will, in my opinion, remain low. But conversely, the banks funding costs for non-direct lending ECAs will go up. So there's going to be a much greater uh, attractiveness of direct lending by borrowers. And I think more ECAs need to open up their direct lending um, capabilities to give a level playing field across the ECAs. Otherwise, the ECA that can do direct lending for, for all amounts will get the lion's share of the business going forward. Um, I think also there's going to be a need for longer repayment periods or longer grace periods associated um, with projects um, to reflect the new norm. And for countries in the developing market, which are having to go through or will have to go through an IMF World Bank program, then the ECAs need to provide a concessional finance arrangement that will meet the IMF and World Bank um, covenants that that country uh, will now find itself um, signing up to.
And if you don't have a concessional finance from a particular ECA or particular country, then that market as a destination market will be closed for you as an exporter. So I think the, there's, a, there's a lot of, of common interest by the OECD, and I hope that they do come together and agree on a temporary basis that during this COVID-19 and during the impact of that this will have from a financing perspective, there's going to be some relaxation of the rules. Um, otherwise, you're going to have a free-for-all. And I don't think that that's going to be helpful for anybody. Um, the other aspect, which I think is really important, is to make sure that as the ECA step in, they don't forget the importance of maintaining the interest of the banks, the ECA banks. You need to keep them engaged. You need them to feel a part and be remunerated for the work that they do. Um, because you don't, I don't think it's in anyone's interest for this whole market to operate without the need of, of, of banks. This is a very specialist form of financing. Country knowledge, sector knowledge is important. And I think it's important to have banks working alongside the ECAs and getting rewarded for the work that they do. Okay, Could fair enough. Can we do that? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, let's. Uh, let's. I mean, you, you've already begun to touch on it in terms of the what you know what the environment looks like after after the sort of uh, the initial challenge of the pandemic that you know we're in now. Where you know, let's be honest, things are changing very quickly from from one day to the next. But but in terms of, I guess, rebuilding the economy um, post COVID, and I think we're probably talking into the medium term, maybe a year from now or longer. Um, you know, what what is the makeup of the industry going to be like? Where, what innov- innovation do you expect to see? And I mean, to your point earlier, we're likely to see maybe more direct lending and banks, commercial banks that are, for one reason or another, um, sort of starved, particularly in dollar liquidity, um, because of, of, of corporates that have drawn down on, on facilities. So, I mean, who's, if... In a in a post COVID environment, who's who's going to be sticking in the money, and you know what are what's the what are the deals that are going to get done? I mean, that's a huge question, and it's and it's very difficult to predict in terms of um, what the market would look like going forward. This does depend on the duration of the crisis and how deep it will become. You know, will it be a V shaped recovery? I feel that's highly unlikely. I feel it being more like a flattened U or an extended U shape. Um, and this will require patience and, and pre-positioning. Um, I think that you know that the the type of transactions everybody's going to be focused in on um, you know social infrastructure, you know water, housing, health, power. Um, I think people will be avoiding. Uh, you know those sectors where they have lost money in 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 and as a result of COVID nineteen. So if there were losses in the oil and gas, if there were losses in aviation and cruise ships, then I think that those sectors are going to struggle to get new money coming in, and that's when the ECAs will have to provide the the, the funding themselves. Um, you know we've already seen in the market a move by banks to to support projects that fit the SDG goals. Uh, and move away from, from coal and, and, and other um, sectors where there is adverse uh, PR associated with being um, being supportive. So um, 
who knows i think yeah i mean that, that's interesting on the stg point i mean do you because i guess you know if you look at the, the the sort of the news the tv news as it is now i guess the sort of sustainability has become or climate change has almost become a forgotten topic at least in the short term and i guess once the economy is really struggling uh maybe there's an obligation to just kind of start doing everything as opposed to as putting constraints into certain industries certainly if there's huge amounts of unemployment in certain countries so do do you expect there to be a um uh, you know do do you expect sdgs to still be on the agenda to the same extent or actually do you think some you know some deals that may have been shied away from pre-covid might might now be back on the table no i i I think the opposite i think banks are going to be um more focused on projects which have a a higher um, support to their SDG goals and projects that don't are going to suffer even uh, more than they had been so far in terms of being able to attract funding. Um, that's that's okay. a that's a movement that I think is 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 just going to be accelerated as a result of COVID nineteen. Mm, yeah, and. Um... In terms of products that you would like to see from the ECAs in the longer term, not right now. I mean, what 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 would you like to see from from the ECA offering? You know, in in, in sort of two years' time, how, how will you have liked to have seen it develop? I, that's an interesting question. I think that um, I would like to see greater utilization and and support, real support for local currency financing. Um, I think that there is a, some ECAs say they provide the support and to some extent they do, but they don't actively encourage local financiers, local currency um, banks to be involved in their ECA product. And I think that more could be done to do that. I think that helps to eliminate the FX risk associated with um, local projects, local development projects, you know, a hospital or a, or housing doesn't create revenue in hard currency. Um, and to have an ECA in local currency, I think, makes huge uh, economic and risk sense. So I think more can be done there. I think there needs to be more in terms of concessional finance, um, in terms of making sure that the overall affordability of these projects uh, are much more sustainable. Um, and you know, linking aid with with trade or providing grant funding, I think will be a necessity as a result of um, the potential downfall of um, certain countries as a result of the uh, debt position that they have and the difficulty that they will have going forward. As I said earlier, where a country is having to go to the IMF and the World Bank, there's going to be an imposition on them uh, to only borrow on concessional terms, and I think the ECAs need to be much more joined up. Um, some are already, um, you know, the UK is a prime example of where it's still a challenge to get um, DFID and UK export finance to be on the same table and providing support, uh, which is why the Chinese, you know, I'm taking an Africa angle, which is a market I know very well, which is the Chinese, which is why the Chinese are so successful. In, in Africa is that they do provide concessional finance. Um, 
So I think the um, and the last thing I would say about the ECAs, which I hope they will change, is I think they need to be quicker. Um, the the processes that one has to go through to get ECA support um, is, in certain circumstances, just seem seems to me to be going backwards. Speed of response being timely. Um, to meet the needs of the supplier and the buyer, and, and to some extent the banks, is something which I think the ECAs, many of the ECAs, could could really improve on. Okay. And, I mean, what, one thing that um, I guess the financial crisis saw was a was that the ECA product was suddenly used in, in I guess, um, high-income countries, be it um, in the US or, or other parts of Europe. And that was then a, a tread that's, that's really been seen across our data, TXF data, um, over the last sort of five or six years in, in terms of um, th- that it's been a, a increasingly large percentage of the deals that have actually been for borrowers uh, in, in, in Europe, Western Europe in particular, and in the US. And a lot of that is actually, to be honest, dominated by either the cruise sector or, or renewables, um, offshore wind being a prime example, and, tel- um, and telecoms. And it was only it was only really this year, oh sorry, two thousand nineteen, that we began to see a flip back to, I guess, what I would say, traditional export credit in inverted commas, of 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 just um, of, of more support in the likes of of emerging markets in in Africa, uh, Asia, Latin America, etc. With the current COVID crisis, do you think actually, despite what, despite the huge amount of need that is going to exist for borrowers in uh, Asia, Africa, Latin America, that because the credit worthiness will be so damaged by this situation and the need will be so huge amongst borrowers in Europe, and the Americas, do you think we'll actually have a situation where export finance will again be at least in part a developed market product rather than a developing market product? Um, yes, I think you're right. I think that the the market, that the usage of export credit um, will flow where there is a demand for export credit and the demand for export credit is driven by um, a borrower's need for capacity of being able to borrow and liquidity and, and all in cost. So um, what we saw in the past in, in in the developing markets is that they became very big users of export credit agency finance, where that finance was cheaper than they could get through the bank market because the bank market started to to shorten their horizons and, and, and limit the, the depth of their pockets. So for an ECA... Um, Having a a large element of their portfolio in in better credit countries was attractive to them. It still helped to support their exporters. From a export finance bank, it was still supporting their core and key clients in the developing markets. Sorry, in the developed markets, it, it provided solution. It provided funding, which was at a cost which was cheaper than that borrower could get elsewhere. So it was a solution. And as someone who's worked sort of 30 years in export finance and, and obviously specifically with relation to Africa, is that potential shift of concern to you? No, it only becomes a concern to me 
if the total capacity of an ECA um, starts to be shifting to a developed market at a cost of not being able to provide support to a developing market. Um, and I don't see that. I, you know, the capacity of export credit agencies, some of them are completely unlimited. So the mere fact that the market may grow in terms of volumes of business done for an ECA in a developed market will not, in my opinion, undermine its capabilities of providing support for a developing market. I, I take your point, but I guess it depends what you mean by capacity. I mean, I, I certainly get that you know country limits are what they are, and and actually that that those limits are likely to go up. But there's only so many people in the building. Well, in fact, there's no one in the building right now. But but each ECA only has so many employees and only so many underwriters. And 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 you know, to your point, that ECAs are you know can be a little bit slow at the best of time. And some of the reason is actually because they maybe don't have enough sort of skilled people to handle the demand, particularly of the more challenging credits to take a look at. So even though the capacity, you know, the, the headline figures for capacity might be fine, there could be a problem in, in terms of uh, execution and, and actually just getting to see certain deals. Is, is that not a, a, a cause for concern? Um, it is, but I think it will be filled if, you know, if, if the... Um now, we're going to have a huge economic downturn. I'm just looking at the UK. Um, you know, some figures are suggesting that we may have a reduction in our GDP in the next 12 months of 30, 30 to 35%. Um, so any government will be particularly focused on supporting and making sure that their export credit agency has all of the resources to support all of the jobs for all of the exports that may be undertaken, whether it's in the developed or developing market. And if, as a result of um, increased demand, UKF will be um, requesting to, to UK government that we need more people, we need more resources, you know, I think those resources will be allocated. This, this is a, 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 a national agenda that um, is going to be top priority for the UK government, as it is for any developing market who are reliant on exports, resources will be found. Well, let's, let's hope so. And I guess, you know, one of the challenges related to that might be it's, I guess it's, it's also getting that resources across the whole spectrum of seniority, sort of at the most senior level, uh, the most junior level and critically in the middle, which is, which is, I guess, sometimes the, the biggest challenge of, you know, that three to four year experience in export credit is, is quite difficult to, to, to find. But, but I, I certainly take your point. Uh, look, I, I wanted to ask just a, a, fi a final question before, before we close. Um, and, you know, sort of, I guess, you know, in a situation as challenging for this and right now challenging for, 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 for pretty much, everyone uh, you know i kind of feel sort of slightly awkward to ask but you know ultimately there will be there will be winners alongside this there will be losers and winners and i just wonder not not for now but for 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 you know for pushing out of this situation over the next 3 years who who do you expect the winners and losers could be out of this situation in export finance so i think the win it's easier for me to to focus on the winners i think the winners are those who are going to act fast they're going to be the ones who are first through the door with a properly structured solution, they will win. 
you know, and I think if you're going to panic, make sure that you panic first and you act first, okay? Um, and so those, whether they're buyers, suppliers of banks, those who act immediately, those who keep close to their clients, I think they're going to be the winners. I think the losers are going to be the, the slow or late movers or those with extended supply chains or over-complicated uh, proposals or those suppliers and those buyers that have not had their financing uh, terms and support locked down. Um, and I think, you know, there's going to be certain sectors that uh, are going to struggle going forward. And, and, and that's going to be very dependent on how much money is lost in those sectors um, in, in, the, in, in the coming year. Um, the big losers, I think, are going to be dependent on, on how deep this crisis uh, and how long this crisis will be. Um, but I do think that there are, I think there's going to be certain banks that are going to lose. And I'll be very surprised if all of the banks that are in the ECA business remain in the ECA business post this COVID crisis, if this crisis goes beyond three or six months. Um, I think there's, you know, the behavior of some of the banks and the pricing and the, and, and the way that they have been allocating resources, I think um, that's going to come to roost and um, that's going to be painful. And I would be surprised if certain ECA bank and certain ECA teams will, will close. If I may, I'd like to finish on some positive messages because I think... Was that, was that an all positive message? No, I didn't think it was. No, sorry, really, I was joking. Yeah. <laughs> I think that um, whilst some of the banks, um, and you know, and some people are going to be listening to this, whether a supplier or a buyer or a banker or an ECA, I think you know this is unsettling time. Um, but I, I'm a, a very firm believer that in the near term, the markets will find a level um, and they will settle and rebuild. And, and that level may be different from what it is uh, today or before the COVID, but there'll be a new a new level. Um, there will be lessons that have learnt. Uh, life and business will carry on. Um, transactions, I think, for the first two or three years, two or three years after this, will be harder to get through. But I still believe that the ECAs um, are going to be here to provide that support. Um, preparation is going to be key. The ECAs are filling the gap, will fill the gap. They will be politically motivated and directed to fill the gap. And for those who have not gone through crisis um, in, in, in credit crisis in, in, in the last you know, 20 or 30 years, um, you know, rest assured that the ECAs see this as their role. They see this as their moment of, of, um, of, their, of, of, of opportunity. Um, you know, I remember many years ago when there was an abundance of liquidity and abundance of credit appetite ECGD at that point in time was contemplating closing down because they didn't see a role for them. This is the, what we're seeing today is exactly the role that they were set up to do. So I'm very confident that the market will move on. It's just that this is a unsettling time period and, and it's moving very fast. But, um, you know, I'm saying there's light at the end of the tunnel but at the end of the tunnel, we'll be looking at a, a, at a different norm. Okay, thanks. And that's a, that's a positive note to, to end on. So, Gabby Buck, thank you very much. You're more than welcome.
on the sunny side, always on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side of life. It will help us every day. It will brighten all the way.